Greetings and welcome to another edition of AUHSD Future Talks. I'm your host, Michael Matsuda, superintendent of the Anaheim Union High School District. We are a district of 27,007 through 12 students. And as our 7,000 plus podcast listeners know, this podcast is about the future of education, the future of work, and the future of our community. We've been so lucky to have amazing, amazing guests from college presidents to amazing students and teachers and business leaders. And today we have uh, one of our esteemed partners from Cal State Fullerton, Professor Jennifer Goldstein. She is currently the Director of LEAD, you're going to hear more about what that stands for, but she is a professor at Cal State Fullerton in the Department of Educational Leadership. Jennifer, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Jennifer received her bachelor's from UC Berkeley and her PhD from Stanford in race, class, and gender in education. So she is uh, a uh, very respected leader in these fields, and she brings a lot of experience into the field, especially in her current role as a leader of our fairly new educational administrative program called LEAD, which we are going to hear more about. But first, Jennifer, a little bit about you and how you landed how I landed, how I landed at Fullerton, how I landed in education. Um, I, that's a big question. I am, um, I'm driven by a core belief in the full humanity of every child. That's really what, what drives me. And, you know, in, in lead, as you know, we do racial autobiographies. We can, I can track that back to childhood and why that is, but I landed as a teacher as an elementary school teacher straight out of college um, at that time in Teach for America in Compton. And, we, uh, you know, Teach for America, emergency credential, little idea what I was doing instructionally, but driven by this core belief in the full humanity of every child, that, that every child deserved to be seen, heard, valued. Uh, back in the early 90s, as Mike, you may remember, there was a lot about teaching tolerance, uh, that never sat all that well with me. Uh, I really believe that every child deserved to be celebrated, just cherished by all of the adults with whom they came in contact. And we know that one adult can make a difference in the life of a child, but it should be everyone, right? If you're an educator, that should be the requirement. That should be the bar. And so my, my purpose is really to contribute to creating and maintaining educational systems that serve all kids, um, in particular kids of color and kids living in poverty. So you just, in a thumbnail, described what asset-driven teaching should be versus deficit-driven. How do you uh, respond when people say, well, you know, teach to the whole child, know every story, how is that possible in a classroom of 35 kids when the secondary teaching load could be as high as 200? Sure. And I, for what it's worth, because it was the 90s and I taught fourth grade and, and that was the era of um, class size reduction K to three, I often had 37 to 40 kids in a fourth grade classroom. Um, 
I just absolutely believe it's possible. Um, I mean, the, the, we'd have to get the hundred or so elementary school kids who came in contact with me on here to get their, their input, although I am still in contact with a bunch of them. Um, when I say, when I poke fun at myself and I say, you know, I didn't know what I was doing instructionally at the outset because I didn't have a credential, but, but I learned. And, and unfortunately, the kids I had that first year maybe were uh, the guinea pigs. But by the second and third year, I, I believe really strongly in the education that I was giving. Um, I know you're not a believer in test scores, but test scores did bear out. My kids did a lot better than other you know, kids in Compton. How is it possible? Um, differentiation. It, there's differentiation, I think, is really key um, to meeting the needs of every student, getting out of this model where a teacher stands in the front of the class and delivers one thing to everyone. Um, doesn't work. We know that. And establishing relationships with your kids to know every kid by name, need, and story. You have to, as I said, you know, really see them and value them and establish relationships with them and generate work in the classroom that helps you get to know them. Um, and when you know the backstory, it's, it's hard not to um, want to meet their needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the last professor I had on the show was someone by the name of Noam Chomsky. Come <laughs> back to follow. I asked him about the the banking system of schools, and um, what what is I'm going to ask you that question, you know, because you brought up the test scores and that whole world that we've been that's been imposed on educators for the last twenty years. Um, how would you respond to his critique of the banking system of schools? So I studied Noam Chomsky in high school, so it's a little bit of an intimidating, uh, you know, job to be responding to anything he said. Um, you know, I think this is going to, this crosses over into the conversation I think we're going to have about lead because I've learned so much from you, Michael, and I really want to talk about that, that the way we co-learn in partnership from one another. Um, as you no, and let me see if I can state this really succinctly. As you know, I came to this work with a, a model of how to work with aspiring leaders, um, strategic inquiry, um, not the same, but similar to continuous improvement, which a lot of people are very jazzed about uh, at the moment is very much in the water in education. And in that, um, in that approach, it's very typical to talk about gaps, right? Gaps in learning. And, and then there's a pushback, and we are getting this pushback now sometimes in our writing, that that's a neoliberal approach, right? Or what you would call bank approach, that it's not asset-based. And so I think the answer I want to give you is that it's very nuanced, right? As educators, of course, we know, right? You can't design instruction. You can't design instruction well. If you don't identify what your students know and what they need to learn next, what the next high leverage skills are for them to learn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people may not like the term gap. Maybe we need new terms, but that's, mm -hmm. well, that's basic instruction, mm -hmm. high quality instruction. The challenge, I think, is, is laid out um, beautifully by an author named uh, 
Manica Brooks, who we read last semester in LEAD, um, who talks about damage-centered education, right? How do we be intentional with our instruction, be good, be good teachers who understand what our children know and need to learn without focusing on being damage-centered, deficit-driven, as you were mm-hmm. saying. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is almost a false dichotomy. I don't think they have to be opposed. I think we can be very intentional with our instruction while at the same time celebrating children's assets and what they bring. And if you focus on assets and building relationships with children, then you have the space to also teach them, support them, move them Mm -hmm. in their learning. Um, And so on paper, right, one person saying gap and another person saying gap may look the same, but it's about the mindset that you're bringing to the task. Mm -hmm. And if if you're saying gap and you're bringing a deficit mindset, that's really problematic. But if you're saying, okay, here's what I need to teach next, because this is what my students need, mm-hmm. gap, whatever, mm-hmm. but you can ask them. And that, and that influences your whole approach to instruction. It influences your approach. And more of a whole child approach. So I'm going to I'm going to And, the, and the students feel that. The students uh, yes. feel that. So let's pivot, because before we get there, you have to train adults right. to understand that. So this is a transition into LEAD program. Could you explain what that's all about? Sure. Um, So it's a setup to the audience because of Mike knows intimately what the answer is. Um, So I've worked at the higher ed level for almost 20 years in programs supporting ed leaders. Uh, The LEAD program is really the most exciting endeavor in which I've ever been engaged. And starting around 2017, Um, really into 2018, working with Anaheim Union, Michael Matsuda, along with uh, Jaron Freed and Manuel Colon. We worked together with CCEE, the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence, specifically Aida Molina, who's now retired, to co-design, co-build a leadership preparation program. for future, for future administrators. For future, well, and this is tricky, and I, I think this is worth saying, Michael. Um, we talk about leaders and aspiring leaders, and yes. and this term aspiring leaders implies that our candidates aren't already leaders, and I think it bears saying that it's really leaders and maybe aspiring administrators, meaning we know that educators can lead from across the organization, from different positions at the school or district. I know you believe that, that we both believe deeply in the importance of leadership by teachers who remain in the classroom. And we know that good principles are crucial, that they are essentially the single most cost-effective lever for changing outcome for kids because they shape the context for teachers and teaching. Such things as access to meaningful professional learning, school climate, impact teacher turnover, et cetera. So that's why we do what we do, that we, we built this program so that we could build the leadership of co- a core group of your educators from wherever they're going to be serving. And then hopefully some of them will become amazing principals. And we, we co-built and designed it. And then, of course, we co-teach every class. Um, I have co-taught with you or one of your district you know, cabinet members. And then as we've expanded to Anaheim Elementary, Maritza Lozano is co-teaching with their uh, district leaders. And that's one of your key feeder districts. And so that's the model. 
And it's a model, as far as we know, that in California, especially with the CSU system, does not exist outside of the LEAD program, this partnership with Cal State Fullerton and AUHSD. In this form, you know, the word partnership, the term partnership is is used very widely. And in fact, I met with another district recently to, to try and potentially spread the model. And to, to her credit, the head of HR for this district said, well, now I hear the term partnership a lot. You know, a lot of people say partnership, but it really means it's your program and you'll offer it out at our site. And that's what Manuel used to say, that you had been approached by many universities offering that. And so what's key here is that we really started with a blank whiteboard, right? And what what do your incoming principals need that they don't currently have? What do you want them to know that they don't currently know? And we co-designed together. We also subsidize the tuition. It was first CCE. Now it's you at the district. You've written it into your LCAP uh, to subsidize tuition as a way to be really intentional about who your future leaders are going to be. And it bears noting that the current cohort of 19 candidates is like over 90% BIPOC. Uh, Many candidates coming from backgrounds of extreme poverty. That changes things for kids, that your future leaders are going to share backgrounds and really start out understanding, not just, you know, learn by name, need, and story, but know intimately the stories of the kids they're serving. So I think for the educational audience who listens to this, um, hopefully they're thinking, well, this this could be a mic drop for uh, training administrators in the future. What, uh, why, why do you think it could be a mic drop? <sighs> well, um, we... A lot has been written, okay, let me back up for a second. A lot has been written at this point about what are called RPPs, Research Practice Partnerships. This is a very sort of big thing in the field, right? And um, and that's about universities and districts coming together with the idea of learning from one another. It's constantly theorized, like universities and districts can learn from one another. And Aida at, at CCE, when we started, right, she said, this is about, this is a point in time of us all learning how to get better at getting better, the district learning and the university learning. While that's written about, um, there's very little evidence that it actually happens, that the, um, the mindset that's brought to the work is very often that the university brings the expertise and the district is going to learn from the university, okay? To me, what makes this a mic drop is the robust degree to which we are a mutual partnership. That's the term that's used in the literature, mutuality. We've used the term horizontal. I like that visual of it being horizontal instead of vertical. Um, That's really hard, right? It's really hard to come together as very different institutions with different mindsets and worldviews and mental models And truly build a trusting relationship where we co-build and co-teach as equals. Paula Arce Trigati, who runs a network of RPPs, has said to us, everyone wants to do what you're doing, right? When I describe to her what this looks like, she says, everybody wants to do what you're doing. How did you crack this nut? 
And I think a, a key to it, and something my colleagues and I, Maritza Lozano and, and Nelshelf Panero, are writing about, um, is this idea. Um, I think it, we should, we, we can, you know, shameless promotion, right? Mike, you know, we're writing a book with um, you and other district administrators and about half a dozen of our graduates. And that book is really a love letter of sorts to, to school districts to say, look at what we've done. You can do this too at the mic drop level. But we also have forthcoming academic work that says, that tries to identify this, what we think is a missing link, which is this is a mic drop because no, we're really serious about the university learning from the school district as well, right? That I, it's not just the candidates are learning. It's not just that the school district is learning. But I have learned, Maritza has learned in terms of the currency of our knowledge about, you know, the field testing environment would be a key example, right? It's one thing to kind of know about SBAC. It's another to be on the ground and see what benchmark testing means to you and why you don't want it and have to adjust as a university faculty member to that reality and change my instruction around that. I've also learned so much in terms of the quality of my adult instruction to the candidates by having a front row really to a master class, co-teaching with Jaron, co-teaching with Manuel, co-teaching with you, right? I've been out of the K-12 environment for 20 years. So we document how the university has also learned. And, you know, I had always used the term inquiry as stance, which comes from Marilyn Cochran Smith and Susan Lytle. You taught me the term ontological humility from Fred Kaufman. But we really believe that this ontological humility piece is what makes us different and what hasn't been identified yet. That the field talks about boundaries when two institutions come together and what happens at the boundary, what are the relationships, what are the practices, but it's what's the, what's the mindset that, that we bring to it. And, you know, you know very well when we started, you and I had tension of, of different mindsets, but here we are five years later, right? It's having the ontological humility to believe that you have space to learn, that you trust in the other, right? That I came to trust you and you came to trust me. And that five years later, we're in a stronger place where a lot of partnerships fall apart. Um, that is a big mic drop. And that's what, what, when others look at us, at least in academia, they go, what, what's the secret? How are you doing that? I, I suspect, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I suspect that might not have been the answer you were looking for, that the mic drop from the practice level is about building your bench, right? That was always your goal. How do you build a bench of leaders ready to you know, just run with it when they hit the ground coming out of the program at your sites. And by working together, everything that I was just talking about, that's how you get there because you're participating intimately in preparing them. So they get what I bring, but they also get what you bring from the district. And it puts them just in a much better place, I believe, to be strong leaders entrenched in the district vision and mission that you have? Well, I would think it's both, right? Um, in terms of co-creation, because that's what we're trying to uh, push out with our teachers, where they uh, 
at their sites that they are co-creating meaningful experiences through learning in their classrooms. And, And it takes sort of institutional support for that to happen in the classroom. And what we're doing is we're co-creating between two institutions um, that, and and there's synergy and there's something new coming out of that, which is really exciting. There's a lot of energy, I think, that that our candidates feel too, because they know that they're um, also co-creating. They also have a voice Right. And so it's it's really practicing what we preach as educational leaders, right? We're we're in the right. trench, we are in the trenches together with our students who are adults and who have their own lived experiences right. and we're knowing every story just as we hope that teachers know every story of, of a child. Right. And if you think about it, I, I, the the problem is almost definitional. If you start out naming it, naming us as a research practice partnership where one party is researcher and one party is practitioner, you've already lost because that establishes that it's the university researchers who are theorizing, who are building knowledge, bringing it to you. Whereas the whole point is to collaborate and that we're all bringing contributions to the table for that purpose. It is, but it's uh, it's very hard for and I'm just going to be a critical friend here generically. It's very hard for universities to do that. Uh, it's much easier to do what you've already been doing, just like with, you know, learning loss and K-12 and, and post pandemics. So it's easier to just teach you that test. Just give me the the, 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 the standardized test and I'll teach you that. So why, how do we break through that? We only have a few more minutes here, but how do we break through this sort of, um, comfort zone of the of the status quo um, with higher ed to, you know, if this is such a big idea, why aren't more universities embracing this? Yeah, that's, Maritz and I were just talking the other day, we want to try and write a piece about this. Um, and in a way, I mean, it's sort of what I was alluding to earlier, right? If It's a lot easier if I come to the table with, I've got my planned instruction around benchmark testing and that's my plan and that's what I've always done and then I encounter you and you go we don't do benchmark testing and I don't want that in here now I have to change my plan so you have to be right that's ontologically humble and you have to be willing to adapt I I think that's where a lot of the resistance comes from that a lot university faculty exist in isolation right they have this ownership of their syllabus their class that they're gonna give That said, I really think the way forward is dissemination, that the more people, the more university people who see what we're doing and how exciting it is and the results that we get, the more who can be brought on board. That's why, look, in the first iteration of LEAD, that's why I had Maritza and Rudy Acosta in the room, right? That's why they were there. I wanted other university faculty, right? So for the audience, we subsidized with some funding having other faculty in the room observing so that they could then turn turnkey. And that keeps spilling outward, that writing and publishing, right? Disseminating. Um, but I think the more people we can have visit, 
for them to be in the room, to see what we're doing, that it's, it's actually easier in the long term. My job is easier if I don't have to be in control of everything. Mm -hmm. I don't have to design everything. That in being in partnership with all of you, there's a dance. And I absolutely believe the end product is so much stronger, but it does require some release of control. So in the last uh, moment or two, what advice do you give to aspiring school leaders who might be interested in a program like this? To aspiring school leaders who aren't yet in the program. Who would mm -hmm. be in Why would they want to come to a program like this versus get my credential elsewhere? It's a, it's a great question. So to my eyes, they get this direct line to their district leadership. They get access to you, the superintendent, to the associate superintendent, the chief academic officer, to the associate for ed services and human resources for two years. Nobody gets that, right? Nobody else gets that. And so it's, it's a direct line, first of all, to learning about the district vision and sort of pulling back the curtain, like Oz, to see what goes on. But also, it's a, a fast track in their career to getting placed. You've invested in them for two years. You're invested in them moving into leadership roles. That, to me... And also, of course, that the, the curriculum is entirely job embedded. I don't know if we've emphasized that. But the curriculum for two years is not academic, to be pejorative about academia. It's not academic. It's working with your actual students, your actual colleagues, your actual data, your actual site. So it's, it's not I, I go to work and then I go to school, but that the program is integrated with your work. The pushback on that, Michael you know, at the university is, well, that's not fair to the candidates to have their instructors be their bosses. How are they going to share and be vulnerable in the classroom when the people teaching them are their bosses? Um, and I, un I think I understand that complaint. To me, the pros outweigh the cons. Mm -hmm. What I love, of course, with co-teaching with Anaheim Union is that you value vulnerability and that the more vulnerable the candidates make themselves, the more you view them as leaders. Well, and you started describing at the beginning that we do this racial biography, autobiography. Yes. Um, and you ask of us to do it as well, right? The, the, the teachers, the faculty members. And, and I did it also. Yourself, including yourself. So I, I think that that does model vulnerability and transparency and the fact that this is not a BS thing. We do not want administrators that are uh, adept at hiding behind, uh, you know, or being condescending. Uh, but um, that's where this is the real deal. And we definitely know and uh and value teachers and teaching that who are in, you know, in, in the, in the arena every day. Right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, so I would encourage people that even outside this podcast, there's a lot of them to, to question like, Hey, 
why aren't we doing something like this? Exactly. Uh, Push love, on your district. To, I would love to learn from leaders in my own district what is what what is really happening here or not. And um, to be an effective leader, um, vulnerability and transparency and systems and ontolog and the the stance of ontological humility is vital to uh, to transform schools as well as universities. So, Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for being a uh, a fighter in the arena of higher ed, and on behalf of our uh, all of our twenty seven thousand students and all the podcast listeners, want to really uh, extend a, a thank you to you and your body of work. Thank you so much. And thank you for partnering with me always, Michael.